Good morning, church. It's good to be here. It's good to be um, speaking to you this morning. And uh, I just have such a sense of what God is doing here this morning, um, just of His presence and and what He's speaking to us just in the midst of, as Sheldon said, in the midst of our elections coming this week. And there's, a, there's an awareness, I think, of that sort of a reality that's in our minds, but I think there's an awareness of many of us who are experiencing many trials and tests and, yeah. and pressure that's on our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just am aware of that, and I'm wanting to really sense what God is saying um, in terms of what I'm going to be speaking on this morning, which is about tests and trials. Yeah. Um, and it's about growing in maturity, this book of James that we're looking at. But I might just alter what I say slightly, just because I just want to stay in tune with what the Spirit is doing this morning, and, um, and also just time-wise. So first of all, I want to say this. Um, please do go and listen to Sheldon's message last week. Um, just the, the, the foundation that he laid for James is so important in understanding what this book is about. And um, I want to just touch on a few of the things. Some of the things are repeating what Sheldon said, because I'm, I'm assuming some of you weren't here last week, and you're not going to go and listen to it. So um, I'm going to repeat it, but also for the sake... <laughs> you know, of this morning. We're not always obedient, are we, in doing what God says we must do. A few things just around the, the, the background of this book, this amazing book. And the first thing is that, um, we, you know, we call it in, in English, we call it the book of James. It's a terrible name for the book. Um, we should really just scrap that. Um, who of you are Afrikaans or have an Afrikaans Bible? What is it in, Af- in your Afrikaans Bible? Jakobus. That, that's correct. You know, the Afrikaans guys always get it right. Eh? His name wasn't James. His name is Jakobus. It's a, Jew, a Hebrew name, Jakobus. The reason why they chose James is maybe just because they think we're going to get confused if we, if we sort of have all these Jacobs in the Bible. But it's really profound because when you read the first few words of James, um, which Sheldon read for us um, last week, Let's just read the first few verses. James, or let's say, Jacobus, Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And so here is this man whose name is Jacob, and he is writing to the twelve tribes who are dispersed around. Not the twelve tribes of Israel, because as they would have known, as Jacob knew, those 10 of those tribes were missing. They didn't know where they were. Yeah. He's not talking about Israel, national Israel. He's talking about a spiritual reality yes. of yeah. people who are born again into the kingdom. Yes. And it's such a profound statement because he is speaking as Jacob. And who was the father of the 12 tribes? It was Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this beautiful play here on words as, as this man, Jacob, speaks to the 12 tribes, dispersed, the the true people of God all throughout the world at that time. And the other thing that's profound about this is because Jacob, I'm going to keep calling him Jacob if that's okay with you, I'm going to try and retrain our minds. Jacob was probably the most influential leader in the early church, by all accounts. You know, we see that that Jesus gives Peter a really prominent place, but as we read through Acts, it becomes apparent that the person who really is holding the church, not in a way of controlling or um, you know, sort of a papal authority, but he's holding the church because of his own character. When we see that in the narrative, it keeps being Jacob. Jacob is the one who, at the council, when they discuss how are they going to treat the Gentiles who are coming in, he gives the last word. Everybody's quiet when Jacob speaks. When, when Paul returns from his journey, he goes to meet with Jacob and the elders. Yeah. You know, there were three pillars in the church, it tells us, um, Paul tells us in Galatians, 
John and Peter and Jacob. But it seems like this man, Jacob, had like this prominent role. Not because he dictated to people, not because he had some authority that he stood on, but because of his character. There was something of his character. And Sheldon brought that out so powerfully in his prayer life. He was a man who prayed. He was a man who prayed for God's people. His character was, was incredible. And so people looked up to him because he was not someone who just preached but he was someone who practiced what he preached. And that's really what this book is about, growing in maturity. And so it's so applicable that it's coming from James because he is someone who, by his lifestyle, showed us what it meant to be mature. And maturity really, in a biblical sense, maturity is this. It's simply this. It's when what you believe and what you do become the same. It's when what you believe and what you do become the same. I was just hearing a story again yesterday. Someone was telling me the story of a person they were in contact with um, who was an elder in in a church that they were were in. But their lifestyle was so far from God. No maturity. Because what they preach and what they do is different. And that's also what the Bible in the Old Testament calls wisdom. Wisdom is when you actually don't just hear what God says, but you do what God says. You do it. You put it into practice. And the other thing that's amazing about that is the fact that James or Jacob, he walked this in the most difficult conditions. The most difficult conditions. The church in Jerusalem where he was based went and experienced severe trials and tribulations. Really severe. Um, There was famine in the land at that time. And many of the people in the church in Jerusalem were the most persecuted of anywhere else in the church. And many of them were very poor. So you can imagine if you're in a city and in a region where there is a famine happening, you are the most oppressed people and the poorest people. What's going to happen to you? Yeah. You're going to starve to death. Yeah. I can't imagine many worse ways of, of suffering is yeah. than starving to death. That's why you see Paul in his journey. What is he doing all the time as he's journeying around the world? He's, he's collecting money from all the other churches to take back to Jerusalem. Yeah. The people were in desperate need. That's the church that James, Jacob, pastored. And he was always praying. And so he knows when he talks about suffering and trial and poverty, he knows what he's talking about firsthand. He's speaking from experience. And add to that another level that he is the brother of Jesus. He is Jesus' half-brother. Brother Brother from a same mother, different father. You know, I don't have explained that, eh? You guys know the Virgin Mary. Now it works, okay. So he grew up with Jesus. Yeah. Now Sheldon made this point so powerfully last week. He grew up with Jesus. Yeah. Come on. He saw him. He saw his life. And then when he, when he realized, when the full realization came of who Jesus was, who was the person who did what Jesus said more than anybody else? It was Jacob. Yeah. Right. He, was an, he was the example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That was his character. That's why people looked up to him. That's why he was revered in the church. That's why these collection of his sayings were compiled. I don't, I don't believe, and, and you know, there's many debates about this, but I don't believe that Jacob actually wrote this letter. Yeah. It's, it's not really a letter that's written in the sense of being sent out. It's, it's a compilation of many of his sayings put together, woven together. And I actually think, and many scholars believe, it was actually written by one of his disciples. But fully accepted by the church because they knew this is this, this yeah. is the stuff James used to say. And it actually for me carries more weight. Yeah. 
Because here's a man who just used to live and preach this stuff and was so powerful in the midst of the church that one of his disciples says, we have to collect this stuff and send it to the rest of the church. We have to let the church know what what Jacob is preaching. This is the stuff that changes our lives, that shapes us. And I understand as well why someone like Martin Luther would say he doesn't like this book. You know, it's a letter of straw. They put it at the back of the canon. I don't want to include it even in the Bible. I absolutely get that. I'm I'm with you, Martin Luther. When I read James, I would rather it not exist. I would rather it not exist for different reasons. I think think Martin Luther wasn't quite honest about why he didn't like the book. I'll tell you what I think, why many people who have a certain view of the sovereignty of God don't like the book of James. It's for this reason. It's great to talk about theology. It's great to talk about theology, deep concepts of theology and how does God save us and these amazing concepts that are, that are sort of up in the air a bit. It becomes really difficult when someone gets in my face about how I treat the poor. That becomes uncomfortable. It becomes really uncomfortable when someone's saying that the way I speak to people and the way I speak about God cannot be different. Because I can't hide that. I can't hide the fact that I'm all about worshiping Jesus on Sunday and then I get in my car and I speak differently to my children and my wife or to my neighbor. James gets in your face about whether or not you are really walking your talk, whether you're really doing the things Jesus said. And so much of his book, much of this letter is, is really leaning heavily on the teachings of Christ. And you can see that throughout the letter. And so just that as an introduction to speak about um, what this book is about, growing in maturity. And this morning I want to touch on the first few verses um, under this title, What Does It Take to Move Forward to Maturity? What Does It Take to Move Forward to Maturity? And I think it is applicable to what we are actually even dealing with um, even this week as we go to elections, even um, as many of us have um, even shared about the pressures that people are under. I think there's a lot of us that are um, experiencing a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, I think that was also the prophetic word. There's a lot of yeah. external factors that are pushing down on people, weighing heavily on people. I don't know if you're in that boat. Yeah. If you're experiencing some pressure this morning, why don't you put your hand up? Any pressure. If, you, if there's something weighing on you this morning, put your hand up. And then there's another element. It's the internal pressures. It also came out of that, that the fears and the anxieties within us and the doubts. So we've got pressures from outside and we've got pressures inside of us. And all of these things are, are pushing us. Often we decide in those moments whether it's going to push us closer to God or whether we decide to run from God. But I want to encourage you this morning, the mere fact that you hear saying, Jesus, help. Lord, would you help me? That's a good sign. It's a test. It's showing that your faith that's being tested is being proven true. Because you're in the midst of the battle and you're still saying, Lord, help me. Your faith is actually proving itself. Your faith is actually real. And that's what this is all about, moving um, towards maturity. And I'm going to just speak about this very briefly. Um, It's really these these few verses I want to look at. We can delve into them so deeply, but I want to just really touch on them very briefly. I think some of these points will come out through the rest of the book because this really is what... The whole book of, of James is about. It's about as we become mature, more and more, what will happen is the things that you believe and the things that you say you believe will begin to line up with what you really do in your life. Yeah, that's right. So that's why he's going to touch on things like how do you deal with the poor? 
How do you, um, what does your faith actually look like in action if you have faith? He's going to talk about things like how do we speak to one another? He's going to deal with really practical elements of church life, of our, our lives on a daily basis. But I want to just look at these um, verses this morning. So in the book of James, or Jacob, if I remember to call him Jacob, <laughs> let's just read these few verses. He says, my brothers and sisters, this is the uh, Montaigne International Translation. Um, I've just combined a whole bunch of translations to, to help us um, take the best of all of them. My brothers and sisters, consider it all joy when you face various kinds of trials. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Who wants to lack nothing? That sounds like a good promise. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That's what the point is. That's where James wants to get us. He wants to get us towards a place in our lives where we're perfect and complete and lacking nothing. That is what maturity is. That is what it means to be mature. It's really to be like Christ. We're going to look at that at the end. It's really to be like Jesus. Did you notice something about Jesus as he moved around? He wasn't super wealthy. Um, He didn't really care so much about wealth and things, but he never lacked. Whenever he needed something, it was there. He's like, go and fetch me a donkey. They go and fetch a donkey. Go and prepare a room. It's, there's a room. Yeah. Whatever he needs. He, and did, did Jesus ever worry about not having? Yeah. Yeah. If he throws a big party, he says, let's have 5,000 5, people around for a party. And his wife's like, who's going to cater? And he, he didn't have a wife. I'm just saying that's what our wives would say. Who's going to prepare food for 5,000 people? He's like, don't worry about it. People come and he just says, let's just multiply the food. Yeah. 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 This, what James is speaking about is he's speaking about us beginning to look, our lives beginning to look like Christ's life in faith, operating in that faith that Christ operated in. But it's going to take a little bit of work from us. It's going to take a little bit of courage from us to, to see this maturity in our lives. The first thing it's going to take is it's going to take a radical mind shift, a radical shift in our thinking, in the way that we see the things that we face in our lives. So look at what he says. Consider it all joy when you face various kinds of trials. It's cut off. Don't know why. I was using the keynote version, so maybe... Sorry. Consider it all joy when you face various kinds of trials. Now, I know that my instinctive reaction to trial is... I want to just endure it. I just want to get through it, and I want to get through it as quickly as possible. There's also a very common sort of belief system that's often in the church is that if you're experiencing trials, there's something wrong with you. Have you heard that? If you experience trials, then your faith isn't big enough. You're not spiritual enough. You just haven't arrived yet. That's not what, what Jacob says. He says, when you experience trials, if that trial comes, say, thank you, Lord, for the trials. Who of you do that? (laughs) Who do that? Do you do that? But he's saying that's how we need to think. We need to change. Our mind has to shift around how we experience the trials we're in. It has to shift. 
That's the first step towards maturity, is we have to consider what these trials are about, why God has brought them into our lives. And He's going to explain what trial does in our lives. He's going to explain that through this passage and through the whole book. He's going to explain why this is so important. And this beautiful um, little um, message was given to Sheldon last week, and I don't remember the names of the people who gave it to you. Dave and Colleen. Dave and Colleen, and, and I want to just read this again. This is so applicable. Some scientists created artificial environments to study the effects of various conditions of tree growth. As they matured, some trees began to bend and snap under their own weight. The issue was identified as the absence of wind. Whilst a challenge, wind makes trees flexible and causes roots to spread so that they become more able to withstand storms. So in life, Difficulties, disappointments, and frustrations can help us mature and grow in spiritual strength. It's a beautiful illustration. Do you want to just be a beautiful tree that at the first storm cracks? Or do you want to be a strong tree that grows and grows and continues to give life to birds and animals and shade and a blessing and fruit? Um, We have this thing in our house um, where we have moved over to making our own bread. Um, Yeah, we make our own bread. Um, we, not, not the way you think we have a bread maker that does it for us, <laughs> a machine. We, Levi does not, his, his diet consists basically of bananas, bread, eggs, and any chocolate yeah. substance. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So because of that, we took a leap of faith. We bought a bread maker Christmas time and we we're like, we need to start eating healthy bread because it's all our boy eats. So yeah. we, we need to know what we're putting in the bread because yeah. your shop bought bread is full of rubbish. I just want to say that to you. And so we began to make our own bread. And so we've got, this is, we do this every second day. Basically, we make fresh bread and we've got it down to a point where I don't really need to actually look at the recipe. I can just make the bread. But, but because you get too overconfident, you go and make mistakes. And then you have this horrible mess that comes out of a half, you know, sort of shaped bread. So one particular morning, um, I had Levi with me, and he's trying to get my attention. And so I'm being very careful to follow the instructions on the recipe. So I made absolutely sure I put everything in exactly as it's supposed to be. 300 mils of water, one egg, um, two tablespoons of butter, um, two, three... um, tablespoons of sugar, one and a half teaspoons of salt, and then you put the um, flour over, forms a base, and you put some yeast and some baking, baking powder, and there you go. Whoa, put it in the machine. So I told you I can make it right, off my heart. Yeah. Yeah, but I followed the instructions this time because Levi's trying to get my attention, and I'm just like, I'm going to make sure yeah. this bread is perfect. Yeah. So I put it in the machine. The machine is in our office, which is our, what used to be a garage. It's outside the house, and I leave it there, come back two hours later. Come back about an hour and a half later, and I find this very strange thing in our bread maker. It's, it stinks, first of all. It looks disgusting. It's sort of this, the top is sort of this hard baked flour, and, and, I, and the smell is horrendous. I take it out, and I take it to the kitchen. I'm trying to figure out what on earth has happened here. And in the process of me being so careful to put in all the right ingredients, I forgot to put in the little paddles that move it all around, that mix it all around. Oh, so what we had was this 
At the bottom was this goo of butter and egg and water, this disgusting goo. And then on top of it was this hard-baked flour. And I had to clean this thing out. It was rather disgusting, I promise you. You do not, no one would want to eat that. It's the opposite of a really nice bread. And in the course of that morning, I was saying, God, is there something I could learn from this? And I was already preparing this message, and God said to me, yes, that's exactly why I put trials in your life. Yeah. Trials are the things that mix together all the good ingredients of your life. Yeah. If you don't have trials, all the good things God puts into your life won't get mixed together in a way that will produce something beautiful, something that people can enjoy. That was such a brilliant illustration for me of why God says that we need to rejoice when we experience trial. Many people try and avoid trial. And then at the end, their life is going to look like that bread that wasn't mixed. It's not going to look good. It's not going to be pleasing to to enjoy. Other people are not going to want anything to do with it. But I'm going to say to you that the trials you're experiencing, they are there for your good. God is using them for your good. So say to God, thank you for my trials. Can you do that right now? Can we do that right now? Lord, we want to say thank you for our trials. We need to change our perspective. Then, secondly, it requires tested faith. Tested faith. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, this is a very big topic, and I don't want to go into it in too much detail, um, because this word for trial is a complicated word in the the Greek. This word, um, there's different versions of it, but pyros or pyra, it, it can mean either a trial or it can mean a temptation. And, and Jacob uses it in both ways in his book. So it can become quite confusing because the question is, is God giving us trials? Yes. To test us? Yes. Is he tempting us? No. Very important. Because in that, in that nuance, in that subtlety is where the deception of the enemy comes. It's where the enemy comes to make us believe that we can't trust God. So I don't want to go into this in detail because we don't really have time. But I want to just um, remind you of a few examples of this. Um, The testing of your faith produces endurance. Remember when God put Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God know that the enemy was going to come? Yes. Do you think God was testing them? Yes. Did God tempt them? No. The devil tempted them. It's very important to understand this because when you read a lot of the Old Testament, especially the first books of the Old Testament, those books were written into a culture and a context where there was a spirit in every tree. Not under, in. Literally in everything there was a spirit. And there were many, many gods. So in order to come against this polytheistic, um, animistic worldview that was present at the time of the writing of the early Old Testament... God is presented in those books as completely sovereign and it's just God. There's no other stuff going on. It's just God acting in the world. It's to show that there isn't this idea that in every tree there's a spirit. So we need to be careful what spirit lives in this tree. That's what the people believed. Every river, every animal had a spirit. And we need to sort of deal with this world of spirits. And so when you read the Torah, when you read the early books of the Old Testament, it's speaking against that idea to show us that God is one. He is not part of creation. He is separate from creation. And he stands above. He is sovereign over creation. 
Later on, at the time of the exile and a little bit after the exile, the Jewish understanding of the world became more complex. They accepted and God revealed to them through the prophets that there is more to this reality. It isn't all just God acting in the world. The devil is also acting in the world. And this distinction began to grow. Unfortunately, there are many people today in in certain groups of theology who have gone back to that old way of thinking. They have an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God. They say everything's God. If if you have suffering, if you have sickness, it's God. If you have pain, if you have sin, it's God. It's all God. God is sovereign. It's everything's God. They've gone back to that way of thinking. When actually, when you read Jesus, Jesus takes us even further. He makes such a clear distinction between the realities of God's working in the world and the devil's working in the world. God's sovereignty is that he's allowed the devil to do that. He's allowed it into the world. But when you look at the beginning of the story in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, and when you look at the very end of the story, the new creation, you see God's heart revealed. God's heart is for a world that is without pain, a world without sin, a world without suffering. God does not desire any of those things. But... Because of the fallen world we live in, He uses those things to grow your character. And I'll explain that a little bit bit later. He uses the very things in this world that are broken and cause pain, He uses to change and grow us. Because why? Because we are broken. Because we are broken. But it's very important to make this distinction that God never tempts anyone. He says it later on. Let's just read that verse. Um, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Don't say that God is tempting you. God is testing you, but he is not tempting you. That's your own struggle with sin and with the devil. Sometimes it's the devil, sometimes it's just me. My own sinful stuff. So God is going to bring me into a place of testing for the purpose of my faith moving to a next level. Yeah. But in that place of testing, there's an opportunity for me to choose what my flesh wants and actually move backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the story of Abraham. The Bible actually says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, God tested Abraham. Yeah. It said, go and sacrifice your son. In that moment of testing, can you imagine how many things could have come to Abraham to say to him, rather do things a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure as Abraham was walking up that mountain with his son, the devil was saying to him, Abraham, buddy, listen, you've got your son. You've got it. Just walk away from this, man. You don't need to do this. Just walk away. There's your son. There's the, you've, you've been blessed. You're wealthy. You've got a wife. You've got a beautiful son. Everything you've wanted, just walk away from this. You don't need to go further than this. What is God doing? What is, what is, what is up with God? Do you trust this God? But Abraham, in that moment of testing, it says his faith grew stronger to the point where he began to believe that God would raise his son from the dead. He began to believe things about God he'd never even heard of. He He began to believe God could do things in and through his life he'd never ever seen or heard happen in anyone else's life. In the moment of testing. But I promise you the devil was there to tempt him. No doubt. And his flesh was tempting him. And so many times, and I've seen this with so many people, when they persevere with the the Lord and and blessing comes into their life, but then the next test comes, they just rest on their previous blessings. 
I say, I'll just settle here. Yeah. I won't go where God wants me to go. I'll just settle in this. Don't be that person. Yeah. Don't stop. Continue to persevere with God as He tests your character. 1 Peter, it's very important that we sh- speak about this verse. Um, 1 Peter 1 verse 6 to 7. This is the same language, it's just in Peter's writing. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Say, I've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter gives us a little bit of information that just helps us to get what's going on here. When God is putting you through trials, He's purifying your faith the way that you'd purify gold. So it's not about how much faith you've got. Doesn't matter. They don't purify gold to see how much. It's if there's gold, when the purification is happening, if there's gold, the, the dross will be there and the gold will be there. Yeah. If there's no gold, there's no gold. Yeah. No dross. There might be dross. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you get other things that have dross. <laughs> but the point of the purification, the point of the fire is to bring forth the gold. Yeah, that's, right. that's why I encourage you this morning. In the midst of your trial, in the midst of your trial, you hear worshipping Jesus this morning. That's your faith being proven. It's your faith showing up and saying, you know what, even though all the stuff that's going on, I still believe in Jesus. I still trust Him. I still worship Him. That's why it's so important, like Sheldon emphasized this morning, it's so important to worship God even when we're not feeling like it. I'm worshiping God because I'm declaring what I believe even in my trial. And something shifts within me. To stop believing the lie that the enemy has brought. The enemy comes with such subtle lies as he did in the garden. He wants to say, God's word, is it really trustworthy? Is God holding out on you? Is there something good that God isn't giving you? He's holding out on you. That's what the devil wants to tell you. Then he gets to this one. God has a hidden agenda. God is doing his own thing. It's not, he doesn't care about you. He's doing his own thing. You see, those lies become very powerful in our lives if we begin to think that God is testing us. I mean, God is tempting us. If we don't understand that God is working out his good plan in our lives, using even the broken and fallen things of this world, don't look for shortcuts. What does he say? Let endurance have its full effect. Let endurance have its full effect. The trial, the testing of your faith is going to produce endurance and let it have its full effect. Don't try to find a way to get out of it. Don't try and find some shortcut out of it. I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God cannot heal your sickness. I'm not saying that God cannot bring a breakthrough to your um, financial situation. I believe God will. I believe He wants to work in those areas. But He wants to shift your thinking first. He wants to perfect your character. He wants to bring maturity into your life. So He's trying to get us to stop thinking so much about these things that are burdening and pressuring us 
to think about his kingdom and his ways. Let endurance have its full effect. Have you ever had this experience where just as you give up on God, the breakthrough comes? God's saying, okay, you tracked with me that far. I was hoping you could track a bit more because there's more stuff I want to do in you. There's more I want to do in you. I want to make you more like my son. I want to make you more like him. So I've, just in recent times, um, have this little mantra. I don't like the term mantra, but it is like a little mantra. It's something I, I say to myself that helps me in times of trial. Something that reminds me. Just three things. I am holy. Say that. I am holy. So if you've received the forgiveness of Christ, then God says you are holy. So that stops me from striving. I'm not trying to earn something from God. I am holy. I can't get more holy. I am holy. Some of us need to say that to ourselves. We need to take the word of God and actually speak it into our lives. Be present in this moment. You know what trial does? It keeps us distracted. It keeps us thinking about other things. Trying to make a plan. Trying to make a breakthrough. Trying to solve a a crisis. We keep thinking about other things. We're not living in this moment. And what living in this moment means, it means worshipping God. Whether you're washing the dishes or playing with your kids or doing the mundane work that you have to do that day, just be in that moment. Stop trying to be somewhere else. Stop trying to get and wish your way to the point where you're at the end of the trial. Just be present where you are. Live in that moment. Worship God in that moment. Because we miss so much of what God is doing when we are constantly somewhere else. Someone might be right in front of you that the Spirit of God wants you to even minister through, but you're so busy thinking about solving your problems that you miss this. You miss this right in that moment. And then just obey God's simple instructions. I love that because God's really teaching me about that, that over here is my trial, over here is my problem, and God's constantly telling me, telling me to be over here. Like, do this, but I want to, I need to, I need to, no, 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 go back here. Just do what the Spirit gives you to do. And it's most likely got nothing to do with your trial. That's, that's the point. That's the point. God will deal with that. You do what He tells you. You do what He tells you. Simple stuff. Maybe today he says to you, go to that neighbor who's sick. That's it. He says, but Lord, I don't even have, don't worry, go. Do what God tells you. And stop trying to fix the problems. Then we will begin to reach maturity. So that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I want to close with this. um, Because I really believe, when I read these words, all I can think of is it's describing Jesus. Describing Jesus' character. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Maturity is to become like Christ. To become like Christ. We might never attain to that level in this life. But God wants to keep moving us forward. Keep moving us forward. And it's an amazing thing that the writer of Hebrews says about Christ. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So I want us to think about this for a minute and how God is ministering to us. When God made the world, 
Did he know what was going to happen? Yes, he did. He has foreknowledge. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Who made the world? It was Jesus who made the world. The Bible tells us God made by his word. It was Jesus Christ who made the world. So as Jesus was making the world, all the time he's making this world, he knows what's going to happen in this world. He knows that the people whom he is making in his image are going to choose to reject him and choose to follow the devil. He knows that's going to happen. Yet he continues to do it. He continues to make the world even though he knows the only way he's going to be able to win people back to himself is through his own death and suffering. Do you think that when Jesus made the world, he looked at it and said, well, you know, the the only thing that's needed to make this place even better, I mean, he said it's all good, it's it's beautiful, it's wonderful, is, you know, the, the, the best thing to make this better is, you know, for me to go and suffer and die a horrendous death. He didn't, it's not, it's not what he wanted. Yeah. Do you think God wants that? It's not what he wanted. He doesn't want suffering. He doesn't want pain in the world. But he made the world, even though he knew it would happen, even though he knew he would go and die for my sins and your sins, because he loves you. Because he loves you. From the foundation of the world, he knew each one of us, and he loved us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He knew that from the beginning. I'm doing it anyway. Because he knew that's the only way that he can have a relationship with you is if he comes and suffers and dies for your sin and for my sin. It's the only way. And so as we live in this fallen world, Jesus also knows that inside of me all the time is this propensity to rebel against him. This propensity to seek my own way this propensity within me to worship myself, to make myself great. And Jesus knows that those things will destroy me. When sin has its full effect, it causes death. And so he knows, even though it's painful, even though it's hard, he knows that you have to experience trials in order for him to perfect your faith, in order for him to make you whom he destined and designed you to be. He knows it. But he suffered far more than we'll ever suffer for us. He did that. He carried all of our sins for us on the cross. And so this morning I want to say to you, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know him, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus this morning, he is calling you out by name. He knows you. Before the world was made, he already knew he was going to make you. He already knew that in 2019, on this day, you would be sitting here in this congregation and he would have an opportunity to speak into your heart. And he would have an opportunity to reveal to you the depth of his love for you. That even though, yes, there's pain and there's suffering in this world, every day we see it around us. Mm. That's not his will for this world. He has a better plan for you. He knew you would be hearing this message. He knew that. And he's calling you to himself. He's calling you to put your trust in him. I believe there's some of you this morning that, are, that God is stirring to give your hearts to Jesus. To say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And then there's others of us here this morning who are facing trials. And God is wanting to bring maturity. And he's wanting to say to us, let's shift our perspective of, of our trials. Let's look at them differently. Let's rejoice in them. Let's know that our faith needs to be tested. Let's not try and avoid it or run away. Let's come to God. Let's come to His throne of grace where there's always mercy. There's always strength. There's always the opportunity for Him to lift us up.
I want us to pray. Let's close our eyes. Let's stand together.